happy Friday. Looks like finally the long-awaited wake, at least for us here in the U.S., is going to come to an end this today, hopefully, fingers crossed. Apparently, they just deployed the Secret Service around his residence. So that's got to count for something. And it's a no-fly zone now, apparently. No, so, no flight. What, what, what purpose does that serve? I think it's more of a security thing for Secret Service. Well, so he doesn't escape to Russia in his helicopter? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. You'll see how this one goes. Anyway, thanks a lot, guys. Finally, long-awaited. Uh, I don't think we've done three of us. We've not done many of these, at least not a fireside chat. So for me, it's a big thing, the inaugural fireside chat, basically. Vivek's I know, laughing because, I mean, I, I was thinking about this this morning. Vivek, you and me have been at this now, as if we've known each other for close to two and a half years. Yeah, two and a half years. And I mean, fair enough, we just started our race on the institutional side together for clean tech. But and somebody asked me now, so have you and Vivek worked together? I'm like, yeah, you've known each other long enough. Because I remember it, it came up on one of the investor calls this earlier this week as well. In Ali's case, I think it was just it was just smooth and effortless. I don't think, at least, I don't know about Ali though, and I don't want to speak to, for her. She's gonna probably <laughs> give me dirty looks. But yeah, I mean, from my side, I think even for you, Ali, it was pretty automatic, pretty effortless. Even though it's been what six months since we started working together. I mean, yeah, we started the race recently. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 almost six months. Yeah. How's it been for you so far? Brexit, moving back to the UK. All right. Well, I mean, and uh, a mom being a mom, yeah, in these well, times, yeah. and raising a fund. Wow. Yeah. No. Yeah. A lot going on. Um, well, being a being a mum's obviously a great pleasure. Brexit, of obviously, is not a great pleasure. <laughs> um, and I guess everything falls somewhere in between. But no, it's it's been great. I mean, I've just been really happy to find mission aligned people who to who have become my my colleagues and you know to work on something a bit greater than ourselves is um is what i've always tried to do and i'm glad to be able to continue that work and not get too absorbed in the whole brexit thing because i spent a, i've spent a few years already doing doing that so I try not to think about that anymore we had nice distraction with um your you, you guys election which kept us all occupied for the last week anyway oh, mm. what's what's been your biggest concern issue or fear since you started even though it's a pretty new journey for you what in the last few months but the biggest concern or issue and the biggest plus point or, I mean, be it the rolling fund or even on the SCAP front? Um, I think the biggest concern has been that certain um, investors still don't recognize the importance of, of what we're doing, of, of the, the reasons why we're doing it, I think. You know, I was imagining also with the pandemic that this really does 
just put the spotlights on on our use and misuse of animals because the whole world is now experiencing something in um is united in its experience and i don't think that happens very often mm. and surely because this is directly this is a zoonotic disease zoonotic diseases are diseases from animals endemic in animals that jump to humans but it doesn't seem to have had the impact i mean there's a lot of governments and it's really been driving me mad that governments are talking about how we respond better to the next pandemic how we're better prepared how you know the medical services are better prepared we have the vaccines all of this but why aren't they talking about preventing the next pandemic mm. why aren't they talking about where it came from why we're living in this pandemic without the destruction of our habitats and our abuse and consumption whether it's for medicine or, or or food of animals, we wouldn't have this pandemic. And, and it's not an Asian problem. It's not a China problem. You know, factory farms in the West are breeding grounds for, for zoonotic diseases that are actually far more dangerous. So um, I can't remember whether that, <laughs> whether that started from, that, that's my major concern, that, that, that there's still not a recognition as much as there should be of our relationship with animals and how it needs to it. Um, improve. However, the other side of the coin is that there is starting to be more of a recognition. For example, international institutions, the UN is, is and I worked a long time sort of lobbying UN around uh, the Paris Agreement, UNFCCC. And now finally, we've got the, the international panel, um, intergovernmental panel on climate change, the highest authority on climate change has now recognized that we need to shift to plant-based diets. Mm. Also UNEP is making these recommendations, also the global outlook on biodiversity. So you do have a lot more political will and a lot more awareness to, to start nudging consumption patterns, which will, you know, this will filter down to, to the general population. So that's, that um, yeah. gives me hope that we are going to start consuming, producing and consuming better, and it will be a bigger factor in people's decision-making process. I have a lot of thoughts on that, but something sometimes so it just struck me out of nowhere. I'm just going back to, I'm one of the first people I spoke about when I spoke to you back in May or June, that was on the call for Devon Garden, basically from ProEdge. And I spoke to you, I spoke to Caesar, and then you were on the call. And then I remember we exchanging emails to schedule a time for me. And obviously I was trying to pick on your brains uh, with regards to the whole EU angle to it. And I spoke to you and I'm like, okay, this is weird. I need to talk to someone about this and ask them. And Vivek actually was the first person I spoke to. And because he knew that I'm building a team, a new team um, on the food fund and all protein. And I mean, I know a lot about how you got into this. And I, I remember Vivek, one of the first things he asked me basically is, he, he did not ask me is, is um, does he have any investing experience? But uh, the first thing he asked me was, is she from the industry? And the second one he asked, question he asked me, how did she get into this space? And so, yeah, I, I want to ask you this so that even someone, one of the things that Vivek and we used to talk a lot about saying, what's, 
what was your journey to get to pre SCAP and before we met, you know, on the rolling fund, Pritvi as well, like how you got into all of this and what makes you so passionate about this? I mean, one of the first things I remember telling Vivek is uh, she's actually literally a born vegan. <laughs> well, almost. Almost. Almost, yeah, born. yeah. But how did you get into this? Like, yeah, um, well, I guess the journey started, the interest started when, when I first understood I was about six years old and I understood that meat was dead animals and I was quite horrified when I actually connected that. Um, and so <clears throat> I stopped eating meat there mm. and then. And my mum, obviously, you know, family all thought it was a phase, but it's a phase that quite a, quite a while later I still haven't grown out of. Um, so I never ate meat products again actually I, I ate fish until I was 11 but I felt I was very hypocritical for still eating fish I'm not saying it is hypocritical. I'm just saying that's how I felt when I was so only seafood from 6 to 11 yeah I mean I didn't eat much of it because I didn't really like it that much but um but you know it used to be made I would I would eat it it's and, hard right fish and chips yeah well yeah exactly fish and chips and that's actually the the last meal my mum made fish and chips and then she had to go out and I was, we had to, we all ate together. We weren't allowed to leave the table till we finished. And she said, I've got to go out and I'd refused to eat it. I said, I don't want to eat fish anymore. She said, you're making my life very complicated already. I cater to everything. I'm not going to do this with fish as well. I've got to go out. If you haven't eaten that by the time I get back, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. I remember sitting there just thinking, well, I could throw it over the hedge or I could hide it, I could dispose of it, but then she's just going to make fish for me again and we'll have to go through this all over again. So I have to just stand my ground and I sat there and I waited for her and she came back and she got cross, but then she never tried to make, I think she respected me for that as well. And she never tried to make me eat fish again. So anyway, it's always been part of my, of my life. It's always been in my blood to, um, and I managed to, turn that into my job just by chance really because um when i started working in in the european parliament for one of the vice presidents he was very sort of interested in in why i didn't eat meat and by this time i you know i'd always followed this and i was i had more awareness over you know the climate impact after a fao report in 2006 called livestock long shadow and you know the the concern about global food shortage so all of this and he was very interested in it so um and managed to convince him to stop eating meat not fish though <laughs> um and then in then when i saw paul mccartney had launched um meat free monday in the uk or maybe i don't know i think it's an international campaign now mm. um I said, can we invite him to the parliament to promote this here and talk about climate change and that? He said, yes, well, he's not going to come because it's Paul McCartney. But anyway, we got a very quick response saying, yes, I will come. And he, you know, he broke up his European tour to be able to make it to the European parliament. And it was one of the biggest hearings to date, obviously not because of the subject, but because there was a former Beatle there. But we, it was a hearing called Less Meat Equals Less Heat. And there hasn't, even now, there hasn't been such a big um, conference. So one of the things I wanted to actually ask Vivek this, my journey on in this space has been very different compared to, for instance, yours has a lot of similarities to what, I mean, I know obviously a lot about Vivek's journey in this space. And again, it goes back, Vivek, what, almost 30 over years now? 
Sorry, I had to mute myself here. I got guys blowing some grass outside my window. Can, can you can, do you hear the black background noise? Yeah, I can. Okay. It's Happy okay. Friday, Vivek. Yeah, yeah. No, sorry about that. <laughs> they they're blowing blowing the leaves around. Um, so so now I have been. Because I know Ali doesn't know about your story that much. Obviously, I do. But so, yeah, so, I mean, so, that, that, so, so, so before we get to that, I think I'd like to digress a little bit. I mean, you guys talk mm. about the FAO, right? Ali talks about the FAO. Mm. My dad worked for the FAO. My, oh, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, mm. no, I just thought I'll, this is a place to talk about it. Uh, but he was, uh, he, he's, a, he's a trained veterinarian. I mean, he, he did PhD in veterinary sciences and uh, he worked for the government, he used to teach and he worked for the government of India for many years and then he worked for the FAO. And at that time, I mean, the focus was, I mean, a lot of focus was on cows, but a lot of the focus in India is not so much on, in, most Hindus don't eat, I mean, Hindus don't eat beef. So yep. the focus was on milk production. So cows from, cows and buffaloes for milk production. So, so India, used to have a lot of collaboration with the US on uh, a lot of different topics, including agriculture. And so my dad uh, used to, he was the Dean of Veterinary Sciences in a college which had good interactions with the US. I think it was University of uh, Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. They, they had collaborations with that university. And uh, a lot of it was focused around milk production. And India had like a huge spurt in uh, milk production, and it's like one of the largest producers of milk in the world. So, just I just throw that out. Yeah, it, interestingly, India is actually one of the behind Brazil, I think, one of the largest exporters of beef. And I was really shocked and surprised by this, but it's buffalo beef. Yes. Yeah. No, because uh, India people won't kill cows for mm. beef, but they'll. Yeah, that's why I was shocked. Yeah. Yeah. And India is very big in leather products also because there's a lot yeah. of... So how did you get into CT then, Vivek? I mean, obviously I know from your PhD days. Yeah, no, so, so my, my interest in uh, energy and God, um, my background was in materials. I actually was uh, worked in R&D for many years in materials and product development. But when I joined the Birla Group in the early 2000s, I um, got to see what large industrial groups were dealing with in terms of energy and water challenges. I'm sorry, there's a lot of noise here. It's all good, actually. It's yeah, not that yeah. bad. Yeah. So um, I just try to move away here. So um, what was really interesting is uh, talk about a water challenge. Uh, the Birlas are one of the largest producers of viscose, which is rayon, mm. and in the world. And uh, they have a town called Nagda, where they have the largest manufacturing operations in India. And what they used to do is they would, a lot of the water they used for that plant came from rivers. And one of the challenges was- Freshwater rivers or? Fresh water. So, so, so they had, you know, the way they, they was, they had set up the operations in such a way that, you know, they were granted access to water after post-independence. And um, so 
<laughs> so they were able to access a lot of water from rivers. And if the water level dropped, then production would stop. So there, there's like a real okay. huge impact of just water supply and water use uh, on you know the profitability of the business. I mean, if you had bad rains or you know, so 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 that was like you know so water and the the whole business of a lot of their operations were very heavy industry, right? So energy yeah. costs were huge. So that's where I really you know got super exposed to challenges in big industry around water and energy. Mm. And, and also the Nagda facility was huge. They used to make a lot of sodium, chloro, sodium hydroxide, which, and part of that process was they, they, they end up making a lot of hydrogen. So got exposed to doing some work on hydrogen uh, there. And so that's where I got exposed to doing work on fuel cells. We, we initially toyed with the idea of doing work on alkaline fuel cells because they used this to make alkali and they used to make hydrogen. And, uh, and this was how many years ago? This was in 2002, 2003 timeframe. Wow, 18 years ago. Wow. Yeah. So okay. I, I, that, that's when I saw like, you know, I, I remember going to the fuel cell conference in Miami and they would say, okay, fuel cell cars are five years out. And they keep saying, you know, they're always five years away. But now we're in a different world. Mm. And now people saying, yeah, fuel cell cars are five years out, but <laughs> truck, trucks will be here sooner, I think. And then, so that was a 2002 and then basically, and then you, you got, when did no more happen then? So uh, I came back to the US and uh, like I left the Birlas in 2004. So 2005 mm. onwards, I was back in the US. Um, was involved with uh, Kunal. I was actually chairman of a SPAC. <laughs> for, uh, for so I've done a SPAC. So you you so you've been ahead of, of you've been ahead of the time basically. Yeah. So but but you know we almost went public. I mean we had the S one uh, <laughs> ready for registration. I have printouts of that, mm. and uh, I can even show it to you. I may have it here. Um, yeah, you can but, use those now. Nah. They're, back, they're, back, they're back in season, they're back in flavor. No, <laughs> don't do that. Uh, but uh, we did, a, we tried doing a SPAC mm. and then that didn't quite work out. So then we said, forget it. So we decided to, uh, then that's when I got uh, uh, introduced to folks at Namura and I got involved with them. In, uh, I met Russell Poulin, who was, he was based in London. Ali, he was based in London. And so Namura had this uh, investment banking group out of London, it was using house money for uh, private equity and venture capital investments. So they had a venture capital arm that was run from London. So I, I, was, I became a full-time member of the team, but I was based here. So the, the rest of the team was set up in London. And so they, they were sourcing deals and they were looking at a lot of, they, they basically ended up doing deals in the US. And so it was helpful for them to work with me on that. So Kunal, so it was 2007 onwards, 2007 to about 11 or 12 that I worked with them. And then after that? But then at the same time, I was also involved with 
the AT group. So I've uh, I've known this group for a little while, mm. uh, and then they asked me to join the board. Uh, at that time, we tried doing an acquisition of an Indian water business, um, and so we tried raising money from private equity to do that. Mm. And, but then we just got to know each other. And then, so I've been on the boards of their company since 2008. Mm. And so, uh, so I know the family well. And uh, so I, I've been on the board of the holding company and then they have a company that basically creates most of the profits. And then we have another business that's also growing, which is the green air conditioning company. So there was a, there's a company called HMX which uh, is a two-stage evaporative cooling business, which is a very energy efficient way of cooling. Mm. And this was a company that I had looked at when I was with Nomura and then Nomura didn't want to invest in it. And uh, I got ATE interested. And so ATE invested in the company. I was the founding chairman. I became the chairman of that company. And then, uh, slowly then there, there was like uh, we had a disagreement with the ceo and uh, i guess they, they used to call mm. them managing directors and mm. so that person left and so the company is now integrated into the ate group it's become part of the ate group and this was into the, the first the investment was done in 2008 mm. and then at that same time we invested also in a industrial wastewater treatment company that's been doing Capital well. Capital intensive. Yeah, yeah but, but it's doing well. And now it has a partnership with a German group called Huber. And Huber, they're, they're very big in waste uh, processes in, the, in Germany. Mm. So, so ATE Huber has a JV now. Mm. And so I'm on the board of that. And uh, so, but that was, just, again, started in 2008. And it's taken a long time, but these businesses are doing well. I mean, uh, the, the good thing about the ATE group is they've tried to focus on businesses where they don't have to deal with the government. Mm. It, the group is an 80 year old group and they've tried to stay clear of any government business. So they could Sensible. have gone off. You know, it, it's debatable, Kunal. Some people have grown really big because they've gone after businesses where mm. You know, you, if you use certain skills, you can become very big. And what these guys did is they focused on uh, businesses where they would not have to have any. Uh, they, they just focus on regular customers. And so that was from 2008 till what, 2018 or so? Yeah, I'm still on their board. Uh, I'm still on the board of the group. Yeah. We, I mean, that's what I was trying to highlight to Ali as well, that both of you, I think, have had a planned kind of an organic entry in this space. Yeah. And whereas in my case, there was nothing planned about anything that I'm doing currently. I mean, literally, yeah. even as early as this morning when I was starting, so you're like, wait, you're telling me you're raising two, you're an emerging manager, you're raising two institutional funds and an early stage fund like like explain that to me how that what your day-to-day -day schedule looks like and i said yeah uh, this, that's who i am but i mean 
if you ask me the way I look at both of you, and clearly you guys have been in the old protein, in in my opinion, or even in clean tech, for and on the right side of innovation for a very long time, for years. I don't think that's there's any debate on that. Whereas my background has been, if you look at the last 10 years, has been all, more on the investing M&A side of things. But then again, it's kind of debatable on clean tech. If somebody were to say, <clears throat> was acquisition of a soul, I don't want to use who did it, or, uh, one of the deals we worked on, acquisition of a solar powered uh, tech to reduce the cost of per gallon cost of drilling oil in the Middle East. Yeah, that's not really renewable, even though they would say, oh, that, but the tech is renewable. But the, the reason I say this is my entry in this space for the longest time running, and part, a lot of that probably had to do with the fact that, I guess for me, I always wanted to get into the financial space. I grew up believing money attracts money. And, but... I don't think back in my college or even when I started in my 20s, did I ever think about, oh, what is climate change? I was always intrigued, but in terms of tech innovation, I never quite understood what it means really in, in the food space or even in ag or in the energy space. And as a result, we are like, I, I grew, grew up believing, oh, this is the way of life. Polluting is all good, and that's how uh, your day-to-day -day life is, basically. Until, luckily, back in my 20s itself, I started traveling, and then once you start experiencing other cultures, you start then questioning, wait, hang on, there's actually something else going on here. And also, I don't think back in I mean, 15 years ago, I don't think climate change or climate tech was as much in the open the way it is today, right? At least all protein wasn't. No, all protein wasn't. Climate change was certainly there, but there were lobbyists like I was on, on meat reduction, frantically trying to get people to listen to them about climate change. Unfortunately, you know, because back then you were seen as a bit of a crank yeah. to believe. Now you're seen as a bit of a crank or a bit of a Donald, Donald Trump if you don't believe. That's what fascinates me is that how little people still, like my, my journey in this has been all about, and I look at myself as an example, that if I, it took me a while, like what Vivek pointed out, in, even in climate or clean tech, it takes time, okay? So in, in different yeah. aspects. Yeah. Sorry, go on. Sorry, I walked away because, uh, like you asked me about my journey, right? So yeah. I, uh, like when I came back, that was just the time when like Al Gore was like doing his thing. So like oh, yeah, yeah. convenient. Yeah, I remember that. Truth, right. So, so like, yeah. And then um, here's something called field notes from a catastrophe. And uh, this lady, Elizabeth Colbert, we actually went, my, I, I took my daughter to go and listen to her talk. And uh, I think some of this rubbed off on my daughter. She studied environmental sciences at MIT after that. And then yeah, there's another book called The Weathermakers. I mean, so all these books, so lot, there's really good books that came out. Uh, look at Al Gore, look how different he looks. 
but I guess a lot of these things came out around that time when I just mm. came back from India. So timing wise for me, you know, this was, uh, I, I think price of oil was like 150 bucks $100, a bag. 100, 150 yeah, it went up to 150 gas. gas was like 15 bucks, right? For, I mean, the FNO space that time was yeah. crazy. The futures market with in the so, oil and gas space. And then there were people were talking on price of carbon. And so, you know, it was, uh, those were the heydays of Clean Tech 101. <laughs> so, Vivek, I was just sharing with Ali how what, over the years, what my journey has been very different where organic, I think so for me, it was where and I always look at that if I can could make that transition, I think a lot of people from mainstream Wall Street financing can make this transition as well. Like I had to literally go back to university college in terms of educating myself on environments time. And like there were these friends who introduced me to some experts at SNHU and they said, oh, you can register yourself online. And SNHU has these great courses and you, while you're figuring out what you want to do, I said, I'm really not looking at studying. I just want to learn. And this professor like, wait, so you want to learn without studying? And then I explained to him why I'm fascinated by climate and environmental science and what I wanted to learn. He said, okay, what you can do is I'll give you some books to learn, start writing white papers, and we'll, we'll figure out how to go about it. And that's literally, I kid you not, how I started realizing, understanding the innovation behind how to address climate. And it wasn't, it, it was fascinating, but it wasn't an easy, easy journey. You got, I had to put in the hours to kind of unlearn the financials and look at it more in terms of is lack of innovation an issue or why is even, why are we having this issue from a climate standpoint? And that's typically been my journey and what I've learned over the years is that at the end of the day, it's not that challenging. This book, it's called Wastewater Engineering. <laughs> wow, that, that looks like some good heavy bedtime reading. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I want to read that book on a bed though. Yeah. It's, it's, like a, it's a great handbook on everything on like, you know, wastewater treatment. This is like... I remember uh, I was talking about this. You can see how fast it is. I mean, compare this to an iPhone. <laughs> you could get a, you could get it on Kindle maybe. And it's it's fascinating how little investors still actually understand and realize that there are a lot of people who are trying to make from mainstream investing into climate, and are trying to either go back, not I mean, figure of speech, go back to school or university to kind of learn how to get into climate because it's you got to understand the basics and not just say oh i'll invest and then learn along the way and i think un unless and until a lot more people in the investment world make that transition being consciously aware or environmentally conscious i sometimes wonder where how does this actually space evolve further well on, on that note we're um, we're about to see the largest transfer of wealth in human history 
in terms of money being inherited by the sort of more millennial generation. You mean trust one kid? Yeah, well, not necessarily. I mean, not all, not, maybe it's not all huge, but these are, are people who are more likely to be sustainably minded, who will mm. be looking at how to invest the money. So I think that, you know, we are going to see a big change already. The major financial institutions are catching on to the fact that people don't want to just put their money anywhere. They want to know that their money is doing some good in mm. the world. And there's a lot of bad stuff going on in the world. The world's been pretty, you know, we've had a hundred years of really destroying this planet and mm. that's resulted in climate change that's resulted in huge species loss you know we're in the sixth mass extinction here's the question for you and and i know ali you say this and vivek i i ask him the same question a lot of time when i talk to him about this change is happening no doubt evolution is happening no doubt it's 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 happening slowly maybe in some cases it's happening faster half the world lives in Asia between India and China. And this is where I always think of it that, okay, unless and until we can make all these innovation technologies affordable for somebody who lives in one rural part of India or China, and if not, then change doesn't happen from an impact standpoint. I mean, in the developed economies, absolutely, it's happening at a, at, a, at a good pace now. But when you look at Africa or look at India, China, we are probably in the worst possible recession we've seen, unfortunately. And we will see how, how this evolves. And so then does it take more time to make these products affordable? And unless and until it, it's affordable from a scalability standpoint, we're still going to probably talk about going around in circles, I feel, where it's more horizontal than vertical innovation that makes it cost conscious. Because at the end of the day, I feel, I believe rather that we're still going to open our wallet and see, can I afford this? I know it's environmentally conscious, but can I afford it? And if not, nah, then I'm just going to look at the cheaper option. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, you know, specifically to food, because that's where I'm working. It has to be affordable. I'd say the priorities are affordability and, and taste. I mean, you know, it's fine to have all the more, uh, the, the qualities that are more um, sustainably minded, and this is really important, but unless these products are also accessible to the masses, you know, in terms of in terms of animal products, it's the factory farm cheap stuff that is just the worst in terms of the environment, in terms of the impact it has on people's health and public health threats as well. But also in terms of animal suffering, you know, intensive farms are, are awful places. Sentient beings just suffer immensely. And these are the products that are, that are the cheapest on the market, so the most consumed, and they're the ones that we really want to see the end of so yeah absolutely a lot more money needs to be invested in this this sector to improve the r d to improve the technology yeah. to bring down the cost to be able to scale that tech and bring down the cost so it is accessible so it's not just you know it's seen as a kind of elite thing to be vegan or plant-based it's seen as very sort of you know it's not accessible to the masses. Oh, if you're Actually, vegan means you're really uh rich and famous yeah and, and uh, affluent yeah, exactly. And this, this isn't how it should be. And actually, you know, if you look at peasant food um, around the world, the most peasant food is 
vegan, it'd be based on a, on a legume and a grain. And, you know, what we're mimicking now is just recognizing that people don't eat animals because they don't like animals, because they don't mm. care about animals. That's not the reason they eat them. They eat them because it tastes good and, you know, you sort of separate the, the reality. And people don't eat fake animal products because they you know don't go vegan because they don't like meat they a lot of people i mean meat there's some chemical reaction when it's heated and it tastes very good and people really enjoy it so you know just understanding the reasons behind it that people do generally love animals i'd say the majority of people would say that they care about animals but there's a cognitive dissonance there um in terms of the consumption so improving getting better products out there on the market that are plant-based or using cellular agriculture or acellular agriculture to produce equivalent products that have that are much lighter on the environment, don't have the, the negative environmental um, impact, also don't pose risks in terms of zoonotic diseases and this kind, you know, our current reality, and don't involve any animal suffering, then surely this is this is something that we should be that should be available to the masses, not just the elite. Vivek, how do we make Tesla cheaper? <laughs> uh, it'll get there. I mean, <clears throat> affordability, obviously, like when you think, look at things at scale, you know, affordability is like, I mean, you have price elasticity, right? If you have a price uh, that's attractive, the market is bigger, right? That's, that's how it is. And I, I think the only way the curve gets shifted is if there's policy input if people have price on carbon, then that and you change the economics that way. Yeah. Uh, so, so in the absence of that, which is what the U.S. has been pushing for, right? I mean, I, I know in, nine, in the early '90s, like when Europe was leading a lot of the discussion around climate, there was price, there was a discussion on price on carbon, and I think if EU had its way on the world, you know, we'd have a price on carbon, right? That'd be, yeah. uh, so. I, I think, you know, and then if there was a price on carbon, the economics would be different, right? Yeah. So, so, so there's, there's the free market approach and then there is a policy driven approach and whatever the policy is, it's fine. You know, once there's a, pol if there's a price on something, then that would shape the markets. And I would imagine, you know, with, if there's a change in the US government now, then you know that may have some impact <clears throat> on some of the policies and i i'm not saying that we'll go to a price on carbon but i think there'll be more incentives somehow given for renewable energy here's my question to both of you and this is something that mm -hmm. i i'm not totally convinced as yet why do we need the government intervention why why not evolve into a model where you're not dependent on government policies to make environment sustainability or un environmentally sustainable products that are affordable without depending on government for subsidies and benefits and government interventions, policies, rules, and regulations. And, yeah. and, for my, and I'll give you an example if this helps to answer for both of you. I, I genuinely believe that the best innovation, and I get a lot of, sometimes a lot of flack for saying this, I wish I was alive, who knows, maybe in my past life, uh, I was in some, some form of shape or size or color. 
the best innovation to me, historically speaking, over the year, longest time years would be the transition from a horseback into a motor vehicle or a motor car, whatever you want to call it, basically thanks to Henry Ford. Yeah, I mean, he was the greatest animal liberator of them all, really, you know. He, technology freed horses from from their, you know, pretty miserable existence up to then. So, yeah, it is interesting. He didn't go out there to help animals, but his, um, his tech certainly... So, certainly why can we not look at a world... Sorry, but no. so, so I, I, I'm happy to answer that, Kunal. So I, I know this is something. Uh, we live in a world where you need to have certain laws, right? If there's no laws, you have the, you know, you, you, you basically have, you know, so you basically have chaos and whoever's got the most power, they will project it very aggressively on everyone. And I mean, and we basically you, you go from a barbarian society to a civilized society. So you need to have some laws. And so then the question is, where do you draw the line? Like in, in different types of commerce, you have different kind of laws. So, so today, if we look at- the, no, I'm saying make it a free market. I'm not disagreeing no, with your yeah, point of no, having no, laws, but yeah. why not let the let climate sustainable products sustain itself financially rather than depend on the government. No, no, no. Make, so, it, so, not, yeah. make so, it affordable. Yeah. yeah, no. So the question is, why, where do you need certain regulations? <clears throat> you need regulations where you want to make sure there's no harm to people. Okay. So that is, so, so, the, the, so the, the question is, uh, when it comes to, let, let's look at, say, electricity generation. If there was no regulations, then you, you, you need standards, right? You need standards so, so that everyone is developing a product that runs on say 220 volts or 110 volts and you know certain frequency. So you create standards. And then you create safety norms. And so a lot of the regulations are around safety mm. and on, uh, at least if you look at the electricity side, yeah. th there's regulations on reliable power mm and inexpensive power okay so what if, what if you knock off subsidies and and i'm saying for both so, of so, you i'm asking so, you so this there's no, so, there's so no like subsidies. in 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 the ag space but that's exactly what i was going to say so knock off all these subsidies yeah. that you give but, these but, these uh, this yeah, big so, lobbying lobbyist basically groups right yeah right? so if you're if you're creating a level playing field exactly which is what we're which, which is what you know as my days my days as lobbyists we were trying to create a level playing field in terms of the industrial animal agriculture receives the majority of subsidies, and the, the the majority of the EU budget goes into agriculture, and then the majority of that goes to industrial animal ag. So we were trying to level the playing field to get the incentivization, the subsidies for plant-based or alternative products. But yeah, if you wipe off, if you remove, because meat, growing animals, feeding animals, using the land all these resources, it's not cheap, but meat is cheap in the shops because it's heavily subsidized. I agree with, with your um, proposal if you remove all of the subsidies. Make it a level playing field for capitalism is what I'm suggesting, Vivek. So is that I, not so the, possible? The, 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 the thing is, one cannot start with a clean slate, okay? You, you live in the society you inherit. So today we have a certain, I mean, I'm just saying going forward, we have a certain debt in the US. 
and believe me, it's going to get more, right? A certain day. Sorry, right. I don't mean to be rude. Right. Okay. So, so it's going to go up, right? And it's going yeah. to go up. So, so the fact is that if you had a clean slate, you could do things differently. So, so now you're going to go into another maybe stimulus package four and five or whatever, right? And what that does is there's always, you know, you have politicians who are always reaching out and they'll say, okay, this, we need to do this for this side of this piece of the economy. So there's always going to be, so it's, it's really tough to say that, you know, how do you get rid of one thing and not something else? And that, that, that's always a challenge. And um, so it's, 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 it's a real challenge in saying, okay, get rid of subsidies for oil guys, get, get rid of subsidies for solar. And yeah. To me, that's one of the things I believe is that in the last decade, if you look at Tesla, yes, he, you know, I think they've uh, had gotten some help from in terms of subsidies and, and other benefits, but I think that innovation could have been fine if you had created a level playing field for whether it's Tesla or anyone else, Vivek, saying, okay, you know what? Let them, once they have these, so there is an R&D phase and you invest for that. And as an, and if you have the risk appetite, you invest. And once those products are there, basically let that give them, let that be treated and say, okay, if you want a cheaper option, you go, uh, which is environmentally sustainable, that's your. And if you want a non-environmentally sustainable, but just a cheaper option, then this. And I, I understand it's not an apples to apples kind of a case, really from a comparison standpoint, but somewhere in the vicinity, I think we can still land up, land there basically. I, I get your argument, but I'm still, to me, this is what I look at. Like when I'm, and I mean, three of us right now are raising funds. So, you know, you, we've all three faced this, the, this question that, that the fact is majority of investors still don't care enough about the impact. So as a result of which, we, we GPs, fund managers keep going back to the same. Nali and me kind of had this on, on def, a few weeks ago, we had this on one call with an LP where we got asked that, why, isn't this the reason why you keep going back to the same impact, philanthropy kind of centric investors because mainstream financing, mainstream investing hasn't yet caught up in a bigger way for this. And I'm saying, I think it's possible to achieve that bigger the impact, bigger the ROI <clears throat> without any intervention from the government. Yeah. So, so, so the, 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 Kunal, the only challenge I have is that, you know, it's difficult to change existing rules uh, because there's always very interested parties, right? A lot of interested parties and they, tend to lose more. Uh, they have a person who has more to lose. The person, you know, if someone has something to lose, they will fight harder than someone, if someone has something to gain. That, that's in, invariably what happens. Let and economics so, prevail. Somebody's loss is somebody's gain. Right, no, but the question is, that's, that's what economics always prevails, right? It's the lobbyists, <laughs> right? right? Who, 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 who end up making money.
money in the process. And so, so that becomes a challenge. So I, I agree with you. It's nice to say that if one can make it, but it's, it's difficult to uh, make a lot of changes. Uh, even if you put a price on carbon, I mean, that would make things attractive, but then, you know, people say that you're, 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 you're doing an intervention, right? Mm. So, you know. Interesting. I, I mean, to me, I, I always look at it that way is that I think we can get there. Ali, would, to me, one of the cha other challenges that in my experience so I've got onto this journey in the last few years has been <clears throat> this whole, you know, shame, I think shamefully or shamelessly, we still, there's a conversation happening rather than more execution happening on gender diversity. And, you know, yeah, recently we, we made the evolution pivot towards the UN SDGs. But as a society, I think whether it's culturally or from a day-to-day -day standpoint, that should be a said and done thing. It should, it should not be kind of a thing that, oh, uh, can you please explain to me what are you doing to achieve that? Yeah, I mean, I think the generations past would um, be surprised that in 2020, we're still having this conversation about, you know, equality and gender diversity. Um, but it's true that certainly in VCs and entrepreneurs, then women are less than 10% um, in both groups. So it's really important for for us, for the work we're doing, that we, you know, of course, I'm probably biased as well, but absolutely, women need our place. You know, we we have our, our maybe there are, are certain aspects that women see slightly differently. There's um, a lot of expertise, and but there's still so much um, ingrained sort of, you know, stereotypes around gender and. It really how would you how would you go about gender diversity in terms of team wise at the fund level or investing in entrepreneurs as well um well i mean you know prioritizing female founders absolutely although you do have to have a merit based system i mean you i don't think that you should just be throwing your money in because of that but i think prioritizing um and supporting female founders because for numerous reasons that would take quite a few hours to discuss. Um, women are disadvantaged in many areas in, in what may be perceived to be a man's world. So I think giving women the chance, but still basing a system on merit, but giving them a chance and understanding the hurdles that they may face that men may not, is really very important and something that we, you know, that we really do prioritize. I think um, as a team level at the fund, having just having that diversity and having that diversity of opinion of experience views is really really important to make you know a good balanced decisions in terms of our decision making process and I, and I think we do that pretty well gender equity to me i think is super important personally speaking i mean it's been from obviously ingrained in me right from childhood days so <clears throat> thanks to my mom for that and I, 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 I would go all out to achieve that. I mean, it's, it's disgusting that we still need to even have a conversation around that. 
it should just be by default. It's like getting up in the morning, someone doesn't have to tell you, oh, go, in, go you need to go and brush your teeth. That is something that you should be taught from. Sure respect women. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what I'm trying to say is it should just be taught, like it should be part of your culture, values, traditions from day one, in my experience, yeah. in, in my it opinion. Should, it shouldn't be even worth <clears throat> commenting. It should just be. No? It should be. I mean, I, and there's enough stats, there's enough data out there to prove and showcase that investing in women founders and having a diversified, equally balanced team between men, women in the VC space actually is only helpful. And I'm saying this now out of experience. And it's not that difficult to put your money where your mouth is. Like I've, I take a lot of pride in saying, I have a co-founder who's uh, on the food fund and in the rolling fund. Vivek, what do you think racial equity? I mean, obviously, I, I know, I mean, you mean during, during the whole unrest that happened early this year, we, we were talking a bit about that. No, no, I, I, I think, you know, all, all equity is important. Um, racial equity also is very important in the sense that you, you have to make everyone feel that they deserve as good a chance of succeeding. And I, I think, you know, like, I mean, being of Indian origin, I mean, we're officially considered a minority, but uh, I, I don't think, you know, we look at Indians as being, you know, an underrepresented minority or like a unprivileged minority in the US. Yeah. Uh, True. So, uh, so I, I wouldn't use that as a, you know, consideration for you and me or Baba. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think racial, we know enough, uh, and, and, but if you grow up in India itself, I mean, you see, you see a lot, you see different kinds of discrimination in India. I mean, you, you saw a caste system and there were privileges, you know, certain people had better privileges and there were efforts made to deal with reservation of seats for people in colleges. And so, so I, I'm just trying to bring that in because normally that doesn't get discussed in the US context where, you know, people talk about making reservations and, you know, sometimes it gets carried away too far as some, some feel in India it's happened. I mean, to me, if you ask me, um, I, I, I think Indians are privileged in the U.S. in, in at least in certain geographical locations. Um, but having said that, I think I'll also say this: that I think um, fundraising for a person of colored origin is tougher, even for a man, um, in comparison to a white person. Yeah. And that should not so, be the case. Yeah. No, no, Even I, if you're an Indian, I'm saying this with personal experience, obviously yeah. not. No, no. So, so, so I think when we look at our fund, I think when we talk about racial diversity, I think we would primarily be looking at, you know, black and uh, Hispanic and Latino um, or Latinx um, participation. Uh, I, I've seen some deals where 
uh, or at least we have networks where we can reach into to get uh, African-American. And... I mean, it's not that difficult. I get this sometimes on my uh, social media on messages saying, oh, so would you, so you would prioritize uh, racial origin over financial decision-making. I said both can coexist. Yeah, no, yeah, it's just, it's just like how broad you can. There's enough talent in the African-American minority community to say in, in uh, climate tech basically to invest in. Yeah, they, they, I, I think it's just that, you know, if I, if you had to dig deep, like, you know, I, I haven't seen any Native American uh, or uh, <coughs> meals as such, okay? We haven't come across, but, but I've come across enough with Latino and uh, African-American uh, leaders, both men and women. I mean, I know we haven't spent any time, because obviously we're in the middle of our race right now, but to me, Africa is the next big ecosystem that is really growing. And yeah, I mean, from a climate standpoint, I'm referring that specifically. I know a couple of my solo GP friends are tar targeting climate in Africa only as yeah, an no, exclusive no, no, thesis. Yeah, there, 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 there's lots of companies I know that have done a lot of work in Africa. There's a company that's in the Boston area. It's called Off Grid Box that's doing work. Mm. It's, it does basically solar and then they do uh, battery charging and then they do water purification. Uh, uh, using this system and it's been developed by, I think there's a guy in the US who works with the European organization for installations in Africa. So it's, it's got that, you know, three continent collection, but, but the market is Africa. And uh, I, I know Africa is, from a global perspective is emerging as the next, yeah. Asia, after Asia, people say Africa is the next market for growth. And will be the most populous as well. I mean, I think Nigeria, I can't yep. remember the stats, but yeah. Yeah. Ali, what, what is the one, you know, we, you and me have gotten this a few times on investor calls. Oh, you guys haven't worked together in the past and I've only known each other for a few months. And do you think it's a fair assessment to say that Yes, but you know, uh, it, it, people work together, people could have, and I'm being pretty honest and candid here. I don't mince with words, both of you know that by now. Could go sideways, unfortunately, sometimes in my case. Yeah, people, people can have fallouts. I've had fallouts uh, last year with my previous team, the Vic knows about it. But at the end of the day, you move on. And at the end of the day, I believe, I'm a little old school here, and that's why I wanted to ask you what your thoughts are in this regard, that if the impact is the, if impact is the focus, and if two people look eye to eye in terms of how important that mandate, that thesis is, at the end of the day, you will make money and you'll figure out a way to coexist, adapt with one another. I think as human beings, that's how we've learned the trade. And then when the, if you look at the whole evolution of humankind, else we would just be animals. So, I, you know, sometimes it baffles me when people say, oh, you guys haven't worked together yet. And I'm like, yes, in the past, there have been in the VC or in the private equity space, issues have been there. But at the end of the day, 
shouldn't people be more focused on saying, okay, how do you look at certain instances in impact, especially for an emerging solo manager, basically, or oh, sorry, not as a solo manager, as a team, two people working together, basically. Everyone makes a start somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's different in the impact space because there's something, you know, greater than money or personal gain that we're in it for. Um, and that's, that really, that's such a strong driver mm. that to put anything else above that just seems rather petty in the end when you think about it in the grand scheme of things. So I think there's more incentive to to find a way around problems. There's, al there's always going to be a way to, there's always going to be compromise. There's always going to be a way to make things work if you really have that incentive. And, and yeah, I just think that if you're really in it for the mission, then you really will go that extra mile to make things work. And you will always have that, you know, that, that kind of unity that's um, in terms of being, you know, that alignment in, in mission mm. will always supersede other concerns. And I think if you're just in it for personal gain, then it's easier to just go, well, me, I'm not happy. That's not the way I want things to be. I'm mm. out. But if it's not just personal gain, then I think that, it, you know, there's just much more there. So, yeah. Vivek, Vivek and me, I mean, I've over the years learned so much from him. I don't know how much he's learned from me, probably zero. But over the years, I've learned a lot from Vivek. And we've had our, we've had our differences of opinion. I know my, I always tell Vivek, I know my SWOT analysis, strength, weaknesses, opportunities, threat. But at the end of the day, pros and call, call put together, basically, I've, I've learned that if you can find that sweet spot where impact is the heart of everything that you do, two people are doing together. There is a way to adapt and work together and be successful. Till the time you can look eye to eye and basically hand on heart say, yeah, this is why we are doing this together. And I think talking to those investors, like I call them sophisticated investors, I think is the only solution to this. I don't, I don't know how you look at this. Okay, so now in all fairness, this, this, is, this is like a public broadcast to some extent. So one has to be careful what one says here. <laughs> but okay, I'll be a little free with my thoughts here. Um, if a person is a really sophisticated investor, they know what's important. If someone is using someone else's playbook, they tend to resort to questions that are really not that important. And so one of mm. those questions becomes, so when so checkbox mentality, you're saying. It's a checkbox, like, you know, so the, because if you, the, the way to look at this is any business, you know, you should not just look at investing as being different from any startup, okay? The, the, the logic is okay if you are going to be because you are still a founder you're yeah, starting something yeah. from scratch so if you if you're if you're like if the logic is saying that you're, you're going to be in together for 10 years 
And therefore, do you have the aptitude to work together? And have you demonstrated this in the past? That is usually the logic that people are using to say that, you know, have you worked together, right? Do you have the aptitude to work with each other in the past? And, you know, one can poke holes in that logic also, because you could say that, you know, you were working maybe in a corporation under someone else's rules and you are behaving under those rules. And when you have your own fund, you have your own rules. And so a lot of that logic, really, you can pick poke holes into that logic because starting a company, like, you know, starting a fund or starting a company in a way is similar. You're building a company for a long haul. And, and but, no, no one, just... Kunal, Kunal, no one challenges founders of a company, like, you know, how often have you worked together? I mean, they always bring this up against investors. You know, I'm just saying. Aren't we humans designed to make mistakes? Because if you don't make mistakes, you don't learn. So if two people are working together, uh, there she's back. If two people are working together, regardless how I could be married, I'm, 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 I'm married, I'm only been married once. Have I not made mistakes in my life? I have. I have enough skeletons in my closet. But at the end of the day, you adapt is what I've learned. Right. And you learn and you move on. And this is what is fascinating. And, you know, I understand that we, we, uh, this is out in the public domain. And I'm being completely transparent and saying it's so simple to translate that same transfer, that same logic even in the VC or the private equity community or in the startup community. That that's, yeah, that's exactly my point, Gunal. So, so like, when, when, so keeping personal relationships aside. Two people should yeah. have, should be yeah. allowed to have differences of opinion. Otherwise, yes. it's, otherwise you're robotic and it's monotonous because then you're just being fake. You're not being true. It's all yeah. lies. Yeah, no, so, so my point is if you could build a company with people who have not worked together, but people who are driven by the, they're adding complementary skills, right? And you build a team that way. And no one really pushes hard on pushing, understanding, you know, if you have founders, you know, you want the founders to work together. And I, I think hmm. the same logic should apply to funds, but I guess it's not. So for instance, I want to work with people. One of the reasons I like working with both of you is you press my buttons. Now, I'm not saying I'm, I, I, I don't get it wrong. Probably I get it wrong most of the times. But I tell myself, that's how I learn. I want to surround myself with people who I can learn from. I don't want to surround myself both with people where basically it's a yes mentality and you don't learn from one another. And I think that's what sometimes to me is, is basically, I don't know, I mean, you want to give it different names. I don't think that's authentic at all. So to me, that checkbox mentality of, you know, saying has Ali and Kunal or Vivek and Kunal, at least, okay, I've worked with each other, known each other for, for a couple of years now. Ali and Kunal probably just known each other for six months. And, you know, we think it's too early. And to me, I'm like, have you looked at other checkboxes on the impact and the underlying thesis? And points and I I don't know what Ali I learn a lot from her in terms of all protein. Her personality itself is to me uh, a big learning to where she is individually in her life and how how she's actually still so committed to what we're doing. It's commendable. 
I, same thing for you. If you ask me, I learn a lot from you, Vivek, because of the fact where you are today in life and how you have a bit of a calming influence uh, of how I should be looking at things, basically. Yeah, it's, it's, it's I, I think sometimes a lot of, in, or a lot of times uh, LPs don't give that enough weightage uh, as a founder, basically. Well, a lot of it, it depends on how they process information. I mean, some things you resort to a checkbox, something, you know, so, yeah. <laughs> I get what you're saying. And yeah, I'm, I know I'm pressing your buttons as well. Yeah. And yeah, I know we've overshot our time. Um, anything you both would like to add or ask me, I'm happy to be on the be a hot seat and answer any questions if you have. I wish I would have come very prepared with lots of questions if I'd known you were going to drop that on us. <laughs> um, perhaps we should have another fireside where we just fire questions at you. I, absolutely. You know me, and I, I, I'm the last person to mince with words. Probably it'll be like, oh, can you just tone it down, like Vivek said, because this is going to be viewed and heard by a lot of people. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, Kunal, no, good. I'm sorry. I got to run. I got to do your portfolio construction. Yeah. All, right. All right. Thanks, guys. This was good. Yeah, no Much appreciated. Yeah, and really hopefully we'll be talking about uh, some new political development development soon. <laughs> yeah, and positive so. by the sound of things. What? Positive ones by the sound of yeah, I, I mean, where we are right now, I think there's only one way forward. Positive. Indeed. All right. Bye. Thanks, guys. Bye. Have a good weekend. Bye. And to you.